0: a joy to be able to bring you the word this evening, and uh, we'll be reading <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 13, uh, verses 1 through 6. I initially thought that maybe we would get through chapter 13 with two messages, but I think that's not going to be possible. It's going to be three messages, so three. So we'll look first this evening at verses uh, 1 through 6, so... Um, Let's bow first in a word of prayer and then we'll look at Hebrews chapter 13. Let's pray. O Lord, you who have said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of your glory in the face of Jesus Christ. We pray that you would continue to shine this light upon our sin-darkened hearts through your word and spirit. Make us reflect your brilliant, glorious light unto your praise. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. Let's uh, take a look at uh, Hebrews chapter 13 and we'll be reading verses 1 through 6. So let's give attention to the reading of God's word. Hebrews chapter 13 verses 1 through 6. Hear now the word of God. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in body. In the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have, For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy and inspired word. There are some very popular words that the Apostle Paul has penned in the fourth chapter uh, to his letter to the churches of Philippi. And it's their words that uh, sometimes famous athletes have signed on their photographs, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And yet within the broader context of those words, the Apostle Paul is speaking about something a bit deeper. In other words, he's not just saying, or let alone is he saying that, yeah, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can dunk the, the, the basketball. I can throw the touchdown pass rather he's speaking of things that are more fundamental to the christian life rather than the athletic prowess of a professional ball player paul writes in philippians chapter 4 verse 10 i rejoiced in the lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me you were indeed concerned for me but you had no opportunity not that i am speaking of being in need for i have learned in whatever situation i am to be content i know how to be brought low And I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So here Paul is not talking about athletic prowess. Uh, He's not talking about being able to do the seemingly impossible on the field of play. Rather, what he's talking about is this ability that comes solely from the gospel of Christ, And the power of the Spirit to be able to, if I can put it in the words of the psalmist, to produce fruit in season and out of season. In other words, whether we find ourselves in good times where things are going well and we can count our blessings because they're so evident, or whether in times where we feel as if we have been brought low, when there are challenges, when we face perhaps trials or even, dare I say, persecution, can we still say in the midst of those trying circumstances, yes, I can count my blessings. Yes, I want to remain faithful to God. I think that it's often easy for us as Christians to be able to follow the Lord, to yield our lives in obedience, to praise him even when things are going well. But it's when things don't go well that we find challenges. It can be difficult for us to live the Christian life. I think Jesus himself addresses a very similar truth when he calls upon the church to love people. He says in his Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 46 and 47, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? In other words, what Jesus here is saying, he says, yes, we absolutely have to love people. And this is something to which the scriptures call us, love your neighbor as yourself. But on the other hand, are we going to manifest that love under adverse circumstances? Say, for example, uh, when we find ourselves face to face with our enemy, when we find ourselves face to face with one who might even be persecuting us Are we going to be able to show the love of Christ to that person? To put it in other ways, or in, in Paul's manner of speaking here in the fourth chapter of Philippians, are we going to be able to show love in whatever situation we find ourselves in? Are we going to seek to be godly? Whether in times of plenty or in times of want, are we going to be able to produce the fruit to which God calls us to produce, the love uh, of the gospel, in times of plenty and in times of want, in season and out of season? Well, this and similar truths are the very truths, I think, that the author to the letter of 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 the Hebrews uh, draws our attention to as we come here uh, to chapter 13, verses 1 through 6. And and there's a sense in which what we find here in these first six verses of chapter 13, to some, don't seem as if they fit. And in fact, some scholars, I think, have erroneously believed that these six verses uh seem to be out of place, and maybe were even added uh, by somebody that was not the author uh, they 've called it some scholars have called it a codicil in other words it's it 's an amendment uh, to a will, and in this case it seems to be oddly placed here uh, it at the towards the end of his letter as he 's wrapping things up but i don 't think that that 's all the case i don 't think it 's a codicil uh, i don 't think it 's any kind of uh, you know uh, addition to his letter where he's going off uh, into some sort of tangent. Rather, I think that what he is continuing to call the recipients of his letter, as well as us two, is that he's ultimately saying that in the light of the difficulties and the challenges and the persecution that you face, Because he's been talking about this persecution, trying to call them back, uh, you know, to the fold to say, don't abandon the gospel in the face of the trials that you're encountering. He's saying, are you not merely going to come back? But also, are you going to live the Christian life to its fullest extent? Again, to put this in the terms of the psalmist, he says that what what the author is saying is, will you produce fruit in season, and out of season, and let me give you some examples as to what this fruit looks like, even under adverse circumstances. In other words, to put it very hopefully succinctly, will we produce piety under pressure? Will we produce piety under pressure? And so the author talks about three different ways in which he is calling Christians to produce this piety under pressure. First, it's will we exercise hospitality? Second, will we exhibit godly marriages? And thirdly, uh, will we hoard? Will we hoard uh, under adverse circumstances? Hospitality, holy marriages, and hoarding. So let's give thought first to what the author says about hospitality. I think what happens so often is that when we're under pressure, when we're in the midst of a trial, whether it's an illness, whether it's adverse circumstances at work, whether it's family strife, or at least here in the case of Hebrews, when it's persecution, uh, we can find that it's difficult to live the Christian life. We can often be short on patience when we're haggard, And we have a tendency, perhaps, to want to withdraw like a turtle crawling back into its shell to take care of ourselves and to ensure that we ourselves uh, go first. On the one hand, this is completely understandable. There's a sense in which we do have to take care of ourselves. Remember, you know, if you've ever been on an airplane, and I'm sure most of you have, where the uh, airline attendants will say as they're giving their safety speech that typically most people ignore, uh, they say you know, if the cabin for some reason depressurizes, uh, make sure to place your oxygen mask on first before you seek to place the oxygen mask on those who are around you, such as your children. And the principle at work here is, is that you can't help others if you yourself can't breathe. And it makes perfect sense. And so in this case... I think that what the author would want us to say is, sure, make sure you're plugged into the oxygen mask of the gospel. Make sure that the life, uh, you know, the air of the new creation of, of the gospel, of the power of the Holy Spirit flows into your lungs so that you can breathe deeply. But at the same time, once that oxygen mask is affixed and you're breathing in the air of the gospel, don't cease to to care for others. Look out for the needs of others. Just because you're under pressure, just because things aren't going well, just because you are enduring persecution even, don't cease to look out for others around you. And in this case, he says in chapter 13, verse 1, let brotherly love continue. Let brotherly love continue. In other words, even under adverse circumstances, or again, to borrow the language of the psalmist, when it's seemingly out of season, he says, let brotherly love continue. The Apostle Paul addresses a similar point in his well-known second chapter of Philippians when he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. He says, let each of you Look not only to his own interests, so we'll fix that oxygen mask on, but also to the interests of others. Let brotherly love continue. So in the midst of our suffering, we can and must take care of ourselves, but not to the point where we cease to care for others. We can think of the the love of God in Christ through the Spirit that it comes to us, but our lives are not supposed to be cul-de-sacs. And that as we receive the love of the gospel, this love enables us to love around us, to dispense and to be a fountain of the love of God in Christ and to give that love to our brothers and sisters in Christ. I think we can see a number of powerful vignettes where we see, we can call it again, piety under pressure or love going out even under the worst of circumstances, chiefly, in the crucifixion of Christ. You remember that Jesus is hanging there upon the cross. And if there was ever a moment where somebody had the right to be focused upon himself as he was bearing the wrath of God, what does he say and what does he do? Luke chapter 23, verse 34, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In the midst of his suffering, he was... Casting love to his enemies, to the very people who were crucifying him. That's brotherly love in the midst of suffering, the very love to which the author calls us. As Jesus hung upon the cross in the depths of his sufferings, he was still looking out for others, not only those who were his enemies, but also those who were close to him. In the Gospel of John, we see this in the 19th chapter of John, verses 26 and 27, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. Again, you could imagine he should be thinking of himself. He's suffering. He's probably enduring the most intense pain that he ever experienced, let alone any other human being has ever experienced in the history of the world. And yet in the midst of his sufferings, in the midst of this pressure of bearing the wrath of God upon his shoulders, there he's saying to his mother, look, this young man will now take care of you. And he's saying to this young disciple, please take care of my mother. He's looking out for the needs of others. What that passage there from John 19 says is, From that hour the disciple took her to his own home. Notice, the love flows from Christ. It goes from Christ out to John the disciple, and then it goes out from John the disciple to Christ's mother. As from that very moment, he takes her in and he shows her hospitality, presumably for the rest of her life. Let brotherly love continue, even under the worst of circumstances. And so this is why he says here in verse 2, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Now you can imagine, you know, how many times have you, has this thought run through your mind? You know, oh, I'd love to have this person over to the house, but then you think, ah, but, you know, the house isn't tidy enough, or I'd love to have this person over to the house, but, uh, boy, you know, a member of my family is ill, uh, or I'd love to have these people over to my house, but, um, things are going terribly at work, and I'm just simply not in the mood. And yet here, what the author is saying is he's saying, show hospitality, and they're in the midst of suffering and persecution. Remember going all the way back to Hebrews 10, 34, for you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. They've got the authorities coming in and taking their property, maybe even taking their homes. And yet he's saying in the midst of this, show hospitality. This is, this, is, this is, in one sense, you could think, hey, this is the wrong time. <laughs> this is inconvenient. Or, again, to borrow the language of the psalmist, it's out of season. And yet, what the gospel enables us to do is to produce fruit in season and out of season to show hospitality even under adverse circumstances, And so in this respect, I think that what the author does here is that he's echoing the teaching of Jesus, especially when he says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. In other words, you don't even know these people. You don't even know these people. Let alone, might these strangers be some of the very people that were persecuting the church? Matthew 5, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is the whole point. This is the whole point, I think, of Christ's parable of the good Samaritan, where he's coming along the road and the, the Samaritan sees a stranger. And he doesn't, and he, and he takes care of him. He tends his wounds. Uh, he puts him up in an inn and he pays his bill. In the midst of the darkness of suffering and even in persecution, what God intends is that through the power of the gospel that comes to us in Christ by the power of the spirit, the light of the love of the gospel is supposed to shine brightly in this sin darkened world. You know, if you think about it in terms of the imagery of think of a a dark stormy night and, and what is it that a sailor on a dark stormy night really would like to see but the light that comes from the lighthouse, so that he knows where shore is. Well, think of the hospitality that we as Christians show in the midst of this sin-darkened world as that beacon of light, that beacon of the love of the gospel that goes out in the midst of this sin-darkened world. You know, it, we were we were praying before the service and in in our discussion as well as in in the prayer. We we you know we noted. It seems as if the world is losing its mind, you know, that all sorts of evil of all kinds is just starting to pop up left and right. I, I, you know, to put this in colloquial terms, it just seems as if the world is going nuts right now. And so we might think this is a time to turtle up. <laughs> let's pull in. Let's uh, batten down the hatches and ride it out. And the author of Hebrews says, no, it's a time to open the doors. And invite people in. Invite even strangers in. Why? Matthew 5.14, you're a light of the world. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. How are people supposed to know about the love of God in Christ if we're closing our doors and buttoning up? But at the same time, the author also hints at the fact that showing hospitality isn't just an opportunity to dispense God's love but also to receive it, also to receive it. In other words, if we don't want to show hospitality, not only are we failing to show others the love of God in Christ, but we ourselves will be cutting ourselves off from receiving the love of God in Christ. And this is why he says there in the latter half of verse 2, some have entertained angels unawares. I think he's alluding, of course, to a number of those Old Testament passages, such as when Abraham and Sarah entertained angels. One of my favorite passages, because Abraham says to Sarah, you know, quick, make some bread. You know, uh, slaughter a goat and, and make a meal, which you think, quick, that's, that's probably a good eight hours worth of work. You can't uh, grind the wheat, you know, bake the bread. That's going to take a long time. There's just not a bag of Wonder Bread laying around, right? Or when remember when Lot, when Lot showed hospitality to the angels, they protected him and his family and even delivered them from the wrath of God and they protected them from the the, the sinful people of the city. In both instances, what would have happened if Abraham and Sarah and Lot had ignored or turned away these strangers? They would have missed the opportunity to show hospitality. They would have missed the opportunity to receive God's blessings. But this hospitality isn't just something that's supposed to extend only to those under our own roofs but even to those outside. In other words, to show hospitality doesn't require a home. It simply requires us to show love. And this is why he says there in verse 3, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. In other words, it might be our tendency That if we know that somebody has been arrested for the sake and the cause of the gospel of Christ, I don't want to be near them because then people might associate me with them and I too might end up being persecuted. You know, I, I am, you know, it's like there was a professor who used to say this I'm not a prophet, I'm not a son of a prophet, but I work for a nonprofit organization. Okay, think about that one. I'm not making any predictions, but at least with some of the things in the news that are unfolding within the last few weeks, and especially even today, as many uh, pro-abortion protesters have protested churches and vandalized some churches, it wouldn't surprise me to see the temperature of persecution turn up to the point where that because christian ministers are not willing to go along with the cultural messages the sinful messages that are being that are being promoted out there on whatever issue it might be that might we see ministers arrested for preaching the truth of the gospel And how that applies to this particular passage is is that if a pastor was to be arrested for preaching the truths of the gospel, would we as the church withdraw or would we as the church extend hospitality to those who are suffering even in prison? In other words, when the heat gets turned up, that's when our love should shine all the more. That's piety. That's piety under pressure. Which, once again, I think that this echoes Christ's teaching. Remember what he says in Matthew 25, verses 36 and following. He says, I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison or visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. I think the author of Hebrews is just following in that path of what Christ himself has laid down in his own teaching there uh, in, in the Gospels. So we have to remember, though, that in all of this, it's going to be the gospel of Christ that enables us. It's God's grace in Christ that enables us to show this kind of love. This is not something that we can simply produce in ourselves. Well, secondly, we also want to note that in addition to showing hospitality, the author calls us to showing uh, godliness in our marriages, in other words, that we would have holy marriages. So he extends a far-reaching net that goes out to the extremities of the community in one sense to say, show love, show love to those who are in prison, you know, from your home all the way to those who are in prison. But then he withdraws again and he says, but this same type of godliness, the same type of love under pressure, this same type of piety should be shown in the most intimate of places, which is even in the marriage bed itself even under the the strain and stresses of persecution. He says in verse four, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Now, if there was ever a time when temptation to sin comes in like a flood, I think it might be under the temptations or under the pressures of persecution and trial. I think sometimes we as Christians might tend to believe That if God has forgotten me, then maybe that's license for me to forget him. Or why should I be godly if all my obedience has merited me is persecution, rejection, trial, and suffering? And so sometimes we think that suffering and loss gives us license to sin. And I think where we find the author's counsel and piety under pressure, the pressures of persecution, really shining forth quite brilliantly is in the life of Joseph. Remember Joseph? If there was anyone who ever had reason to believe that God had forgotten him, it was Joseph. You know, his brothers, his very own flesh and blood, you know, basically bind him, chunk him in a well. And then, just when they pull the top off the well, he probably thinks at first, Oh, thank God, they're going to let me loose. Maybe he even thought, Wait till I tell dad about this. And instead of cutting him loose, they sell him to slave traders, and he descends into the belly of Egypt. Presumably, he probably thinks never to be seen again, maybe even unto his death. He's sold into slavery. Seemingly forgotten, and yet it was in the depths of his suffering and temptations that when temptation came a-knocking, with Potiphar's wife trying to seduce him, you see his piety under pressure. Genesis 39, verses 8 and following, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. He has put me in charge of everything. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. In the depths of his suffering, under the pressures, under the pressures of that suffering, he maintained his piety. But what we have to remember, again, is that the only way that we will not succumb to those types of temptations, even under extreme pressure, is from Christ through the Spirit. And here is the principle, I think, that is at work. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 12.10, For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And the whole point, I think, here to the author's counsel and his exhortations is that when we are being persecuted, when we're in the midst of trial, when we are suffering... That, of course, is when we're weakest, but that at the same time is when we can rest in the power of the grace of the gospel of Christ so that we may be humanly weak, but in Christ is when we are strongest. It's when we are weak, when we are, you know, as Paul describes us as Second Corinthians, vessels that have broken pieces that, that, that seemingly look as if it renders us useless But instead, it's those broken pieces allow the light of the gospel to shine out from inside the jars of clay that we are. So that people can see the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ in our lives when we are weak. When we are weak, he is strong. When we decrease, he increases. And so here he's calling his recipients to maintain the purity of the marriage bed to maintain the purity of the marriage bed and something as seemingly out of sight as, as, you know, as, as anything in our public lives. That's something that occurs behind closed doors. And he says, yet even there, maintain your piety under pressure. Third and finally, he talks about hoarding. He talks about hoarding. And I, I do note that I think that in this sermon, I've Yeah, I got, I think I listened to Pastor David Strain preach that last week, and he had a lot of alliterations. Piety, I have piety under pressure, hoarding, hospitality, and holy marriages. I think I went nuts. Nevertheless, let's talk about hoarding for a minute. And that the last exhortation he gives is piety with regard to money, which again may seem out of place, but I don't think it is. He says in verse 5, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have for, as he, uh, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now remember what the Apostle Paul has said in this regard. He says in First Timothy 6.10, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. So I think the author is working from this uh, principle. But in this case, if money rather than God is our chief concern, then what will happen when the fire of persecution turns up And somebody puts our feet in it to say, commit this wrong, deny your God, or you will lose your money. Deny God, and if you do not deny God, you will lose your home. Deny God, or you will lose your job. If money is our chief concern, then we might go ahead and deny God because we are more interested in money than we are in God. We are more interested in serving the idol of mammon than we are in serving the one true living God. And so I think here the key to avoiding the idolatry of mammon, we could say, is at least twofold. First of all, we have to flee the lure of wealth. It's a powerful siren. It's a powerful siren. It's a powerful call. But there's a principle that is at play here. One of them is is small desires means small needs. If we don't desire much, then we don't need much. And this is one of the things that can be extremely difficult in our materialistic age. You know, these days with instant credit, you know, overnight deliveries, two-day shipping, prime memberships, you know, there, there's little that we can actually, uh, that we have to wait for. There's little that we don't have to, we, 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 we can put off. We can just have everything at the moment of our desire. You know, it's like I can remember as a kid wanting a frame for my bike, a new bike frame. And uh, I had to put it on layaway. You know, and I can remember going into the bike shop about once a month for about six months, seeing that bike frame up on the shelf and saying, here's another 20 bucks, (laughs) you know, and wanting it. I just couldn't have it right away. I couldn't have it right away. Small desires means small needs. If we can learn to put off desire and say, do I really need this? What that boils down to, how do we moderate our desires? How do we end up with small needs? It's not in asceticism. It's not in saying, I'm going to cut all of this stuff out of my life. This may have some value, but ultimately I think it falls short. The only surefire way to ensure that mammon doesn't live within our hearts is to make no room for mammon by ensuring that it is Christ who lives in our hearts and that if he fills our hearts and we find contentment in him, then that means that the lure of money will have no attraction for us. We'll be able to say, you know what? Take my job. I don't care. Christ is more important to me. Take my house. I don't care. Christ is more important to me. Take my money. Because Christ is more important to me. Again. This is why he says at the end of verse 6, so we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? You can't do anything to me. It all belongs to the Lord anyway. And if it all belongs to him, then all he's doing is he's taking it out of my hands. You know, blessed be the name of the Lord. He gives and he takes and it's up to him. But either way, I am content in times of plenty or in times of want, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So, beloved, piety under pressure isn't about us digging deep and shining, being moral in the midst of an immoral world. Rather, it's about resting in the promises of the gospel of Christ, resting in Christ's righteousness and holiness and letting his righteousness and holiness shine out in the midst of the darkness. It's about us being weak and resting in the power and strength of the Spirit. For when we are weak, He is strong. Moreover, it's about shining the light of Christ's righteousness in this sin-darkened world, rather than being swept away in the darkness of this world's sin. How do we manifest this righteousness? By drawing near to God in Christ through the Spirit, and He draws near to us. And His love will enable us to love him and to love others so that we would have the mind of Christ, so that we would show hospitality and be that beacon of the love of the gospel in the midst of the sin-darkened world, so that we would have holy marriages, that our marriages would be beacons of light in the midst of this sin-darkened world, and that we would find contentment, even, dare I say, happiness, in God's provision for us, whatever it may be, whether it's in times of plenty or in times of want, that we would be able to produce the fruit of holiness in season and out. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Father God, we are grateful for your love and mercies that you have shown us in Christ, and we give thanks for your protection and watching over us throughout all of our lives. We pray, O Lord, that no matter what seasons you bring upon us, whether they be seasons of blessing or whether they be seasons of trial, that you would produce in us the fruit of godliness and holiness, that when we are weak, you would be strong, that when we are suffering, that you would sustain us, and that you would not merely sustain us, but enable us to be more than conquerors, that we would show brotherly love, that we would maintain purity in our marriages, that we would find contentment in you, So that the pressures of persecution, of suffering, of trial would not press us into uh, the, the mold of the world, but rather into the mold of Christ. And that in those times that are challenging, you would conform us all the more to the image of Christ and impart unto us the joy that surpasses all understanding. Glorify yourself, O Lord, in and through your people, especially in these challenging days that may lie ahead for us. Regardless, O Lord, of what occurs in the world around us, we pray that you would make us holy and that you would glorify yourself in our midst and that you would enable us to produce fruit in, in season and in out of season. We pray and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.